This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Join me and several of my friends on October 14th, 2023 for the Studio Both and Launch Party happening in the Berkshires, Massachusetts. It's going to be a night of podcasting, community, and giving back. Your ticket not only grants you access to an unforgettable event, but also supports two incredible causes, PI for the Missing and the Northern Berkshire Community Coalition. So don't miss out. Secure your spot now at bothand.fyi launch. And for my amazing Patreon members, there's a special discount code waiting just for you. Let's celebrate, connect, and make a positive impact together. I can't wait to see you there. The 2024 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival happens July 12th through the 14th in Denver, Colorado. Early bird tickets are now available, and I hope to see you there. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. Have you ever stopped to think about the little things we usually breeze past? I'm talking about those everyday objects that never catch our eye, unless we're grumbling about them sticking to our shoes. You've probably got a hunch by now, right? But hang on. What if I told you there's more to this than meets the eye? You've probably guessed what I'm talking about already. And you might be asking yourself, what does chewing gum have to do with a true crime case? Well, you might be surprised to learn that the answer to that question is quite a lot, actually. So we're all familiar with the routine. Gum in, flavor out, and eventually it's out of sight. But here's the scoop. This chewed up stuff becomes a treasure trove of DNA, a goldmine for detectives. Think about it. It's such a common habit that it's no wonder countless investigations have been aided by a piece of gum left at the crime scene, disgustingly spat out without any care for a more hygienic disposal, crushed into the sidewalk, and immediately forgotten. But that's not exactly what the cases we're covering today are about. Yes, they're both cases where chewing gum was used to solve a murder, a cold case in fact in both instances but in neither investigation was the gum carelessly forgotten. Intrigued yet? You should be. Okay, on to the show. Blanche M. Kimball was born in Albany Township, Maine, on March 27, 1906. Her parents were Fanny and Elliot Kimball, 
who owned a farm from around the time Blanche was born until the time they moved out of the property in 1908. Blanche's life isn't exactly an open book. In fact, a lot about what we know about her comes solely from her obituary. The obit described a jack-of-all-trades. She worked as a practical nurse and a dental technician, and for some time she also worked for the Togus Veterans Administration Center. Blanche's mother ran a group home in Augusta, Maine, though no articles clarified what exactly this meant. It's possible this was an assisted and or supervised living arrangement for those with health conditions or who lack the ability to care for themselves. When her mother died in 1963, Blanche inherited her residence, though it appears she did not continue to run it as a group home, and instead occasionally rented out its rooms to boarders as a way to supplement her income. Blanche never married and never had children. She retired in 1973, but tragically only lived to enjoy three more years of life. We do not know the exact date that Blanche died, only that it was some point in early June 1976. Police were called to her home on June 12th by worried neighbors, who realized that it had been a long time since they had seen the 70-year-old woman and were concerned something may have happened to her. They were probably expecting, at worst, that the elderly woman had fallen and hurt herself and was unable to get help, or that she was unwell and confined to her bed. They never could have imagined the scene that confronted the police when they crossed the threshold into the home. There lay Blanche Kimball, lifeless and lying in a pool of her own blood. Her clothing had been pulled up, her body was already beginning to decompose, and she had been stabbed to death. According to the medical examiner, the cause of death was stab wounds to the heart. Overall, the elderly woman received 25 stab wounds to the chest and abdomen, as well as several cuts to her hands and head. All told, she was stabbed up to 44 times. This amount of damage caused hemorrhage and shock, both of which also contributed to her subsequent death. The sheer brutality of this scene left them speechless. It appeared that the murderer had injured themselves during the assault on Blanche, as blood and other DNA was collected from the kitchen and living room that did not appear it could possibly belong to Blanche. It wasn't blood spatter from the attack itself, but its placement suggested that someone leaving the scene had left their mark. All of this unfolded in the 1970s, a time when the idea of DNA analysis was still in its infancy. The technology we rely on today for pinpointing culprits through genetic evidence was nothing more than a distant dream back then. So, as tantalizing as this lead might be, the means to definitively tie it to a suspect remained frustratingly out of reach. Just imagine, it was a whole decade before we even started to tap into the incredible power of DNA analysis that we have today. They had worked out how the murder had taken place, so they moved on to the next question. When did it all happen? Police believe that the murder occurred at some point after June 2nd, due to a newspaper found in the property with that same date. Also found was a supermarket receipt from June 5th, so it was possibly even later. Yet even armed with these clues, the window of possibility stretched across a whole week, leaving the police with the challenging task of narrowing down exactly when this tragic incident took place. Something that impeded the investigation further was that at the time of Blanche's death, police struggled to find her next of kin. 
This meant no family members to speak with who could say they had called or visited her recently and narrowed down the date of death, nor could anyone suggest anyone who might have wanted to harm Blanche. Despite investigators' best efforts, it took some time for them to identify any relatives at all, and when they finally did so, they only managed to find two aunts, one in Massachusetts and one in California. They appeared to be Blanche's only living heirs. One aunt passed away not long after the murder of her niece, and as far as we can tell, none of Blanche's distant relatives have spoken with the media regarding the murder to this day. Investigators also had great difficulty identifying anyone who may have been responsible for the cruel attack on the 70-year-old. According to an affidavit from the time, one suspect was Gary Robert Wilson. He had been one of Blanche's boarders and was known to have a penchant for heavy drinking. It's important to clarify that we're not implying that heavy drinking is synonymous with violence, but in certain cases, it can potentially make an individual more prone to aggression. After Blanche's death, Wilson was caught breaking into a home in the same neighborhood as Blanche's. He was caught with a knife in his hands as he tried to enter this other woman's home via the basement, perhaps with the intent of committing a burglary. The combination of this connection with Blanche and the attempted crime against the other local woman, which also involved a knife, made Wilson a promising suspect. Despite the suspicions surrounding Wilson, the evidence against him was far from conclusive. His staunch denial of any connection to Blanche's murder was one hurdle. There was also the absence of any witnesses who could place him at the scene during the potential days of the crime, and that further weakened the case. And again, this was the 70s. Regardless of any DNA evidence that might have been collected at the time, none of it could be tested to identify a suspect. Even then, Wilson was a boarder in the home. Fingerprints or hair evidence could easily be explained away by the fact that he lived there. The single potential piece of evidence that could have solidly linked Wilson to the crime scene was a bloody shoe print discovered on a box. Wilson insisted he possessed only a single pair of shoes, which the police meticulously examined and determined did not match the print left in blood. However, a significant twist emerged. Wilson had acquired this pair of shoes subsequent to the suspected date of Blanche's murder, and he had concurrently discarded his previous shoes. In a bid to bridge the gap, law enforcement embarked on a mission to locate these discarded shoes. The hope was finding these old shoes could provide the critical missing link required to incriminate Wilson in the murder. Yet despite their best efforts, the old shoes remained elusive, refusing to be found. So, even though the possibility of those shoes held the potential to tip the scales, the missing link remained just that, missing. According to Lee Clement, an officer who was involved with the original investigation, no charges were ever brought against Wilson for the murder of Blanche Kimball. Wilson did spend some time in jail for the burglary that he committed on the other home, and after he served his time, he left Maine. At that point, Maine police lost all track of him. The investigation into who killed Blanche Kimball soon went cold, and it wouldn't gain any more momentum until 2011, 35 years after her death. A tip of undisclosed nature sparked renewed interest in the case, prompting authorities to revisit it. This time, they had a technological edge. 
enabling them to re-examine the DNA evidence. Suspicions from the original investigation were confirmed then. The killer had injured themselves during the attack and left their own blood at the scene, as it did not match Blanche's DNA on file. Regrettably, the DNA evidence didn't yield a match with any known individuals in the system. Additionally, the tip they had received, though significant enough to breathe fresh life into the long dormant case, ultimately didn't lead to any substantial breakthroughs. Then, a previous suspect emerged once again, involved in another incident of knife-related violence. During October 2011, a disturbing incident unfolded in Seattle, Washington. Two homeless men engaged in a confrontation that escalated to a stabbing, leaving one of them critically wounded. The injured individual fled the scene, and it remains uncertain whether he survived the assault, as no additional information regarding his condition could be located. The second man involved was apprehended by the police and placed under custody, while the knife he used was confiscated as evidence. While this man was being held, the knife was tested for DNA, as is routine, due to its involvement in a violent crime. Incredibly, this man's profile was a partial match to the blood from Blanche's kitchen, which had been tested only months earlier. So, who was this man, involved in one stabbing, and possibly connected to another? He was 63-year-old Gary Sanford Raub. However, we don't know all that much about him either. All we know was that the previous December, in the wake of a police officer shooting another homeless man, Raub had been interviewed by the Stranger Weekly newspaper. In this interview, Raub claimed to have been in the Vietnam War, as well as being captured and held as a Cambodian prisoner of war for several years. It is unclear how much, if any, of that is true, as the interviewer did not verify any of the man's claims. What we do know, however, is that in 1976, at the age of 28, he was known as Gary Robert Wilson, the man who had boarded with Blanche Kimball and the only known suspect in her murder. The connection between these incidents was promptly established, prompting Seattle police to collaborate with their counterparts in Maine. Their goal? To secure an improved DNA sample for comparison with the historical evidence. And the end result? Well, you may have guessed already, given how I introduced this episode. An undercover officer claimed to be holding a chewing gum and cigarette survey, inviting Wilson, now Raub, to participate, and offering $5 for his time. Raub accepted the offer, chewed the gum, and in doing so, unknowingly handed his DNA over to police for analysis. In a later jailhouse interview, Raub said that this was unnecessary, claiming, if they had asked me for my DNA, I would have done it. I have nothing to hide. He also questioned whether this counted as entrapment, although his attorney told him it did not qualify as such. Regardless of whether Raub had nothing to hide, it is understandable that the police proceeded with caution, and their efforts were worth it. The DNA was a match to both the DNA on the knife from the stabbing in Seattle and the blood samples collected from Blanche's kitchen. Raub found himself under arrest and subsequently extradited to Maine. Upon his return, he faced a slew of charges that included murder and criminal homicide in the first degree. This included a charge that he had knowingly inflicted great physical suffering on Blanche Kimball on that day in early June, 35 years earlier. In response, Raub entered an Alford plea, 
a type of guilty plea that admits the evidence presented by the prosecution would be likely to persuade a judge or jury to find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but allows the defendant to continue asserting their innocence. This was because Raub said he didn't remember anything about Blanche, her house, or even being in the city at the time. As he put it, I pled guilty because it must have happened, but it doesn't mean I admitted the crime. I pled guilty mostly out of the fact that if I go to the Maker, the God in the Sky, I want a clear conscience. It was 2014 before the trial and sentencing took place, and Raub was given a life sentence for the crime he claimed to have no memory of. He died in prison two years later, age 67. Although there are many possible theories for what motivated Gary Raub's attack on his elderly landlady, no motive was ever given. Nevertheless, though Blanche's remaining relatives declined to speak with the press on the record, they reportedly were pleased by the results of the trial and that Blanche finally got the justice she deserved. As of 2012, the case of Blanche Kimball was the oldest unsolved homicide case to ever result in charges in the state of Maine. Maine State Police Lieutenant Christopher Coleman was determined for people to know that no matter how solitary a life someone leads, or how little publicity there is, or how few people come forward to champion their case, they deserve to see justice for the wrongs done to them. In his own words, every story needs to be told. Hey friends, fall's around the corner and life's getting busier, right? Well, let me introduce you to Factor, your new mealtime hero for those days that just don't stop. Ready for some goodness? Factor, America's top ready-to-eat meal kit, has your back. Say goodbye to cooking stress and hello to chef-prepared, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. Convenience and health? Yes, please! Some are still shining and so are your goals. Forget about extra trips to the store. Factor's fresh meals ready in two minutes are here to rescue your time and your taste buds. Just heat and enjoy and you're back in action. Explore 34-plus mouth-watering options that won't break your stride. And if you're ready to level up, dive into Gourmet Plus meals boosting premium ingredients like broccolini and truffle butter. Talk about treating yourself right. Short on lunchtime? Lunch to Go has you covered with quick, wholesome meals for your on-the-go lifestyle. And for those watching calories, there's a whole lineup of calorie-smart meals under 550 calories per serving. Need a protein kick? Meet Protein Plus meals with 30 grams or more per serving. Plus, Factors got you covered with 45-plus add-ons from apple cinnamon pancakes to refreshing cold-pressed juices. But it's not just about you. It's about the planet, too. Factor offsets delivery emissions, sources renewable energy, and brings sustainably sourced seafood to your table. This is your month. Say hello to effortless eating. Head to factormeals.com slash Laney50. And guess what? You can grab 50% off with code Laney50. That's F-A-C-T-O-R-M-E-A-L-S dot com slash L-A-N-I-E five zero. Code Laney50 for 50% off. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In our next case, we travel from Maine, New England, to Birmingham, England, only five years after the murder of Blanche Kimball. Just like Blanche, little is publicly known about the victim's life, and her murder would be a case that soon went cold, only to resurface over three decades later to be solved, and part of what solved it was a piece of chewing gum. But unlike Blanche, this victim had family and friends that fought, so that she would not be forgotten. Nova Welsh was born in Jamaica in 1957 to Mother Lorna Welsh. Nova was joined by a little sister Valerie before the small family left Jamaica for the UK in 1967. This was a decision made by Lorna, who loved Jamaica and the community they had there, but believed that her daughters would have a better life in the UK. It was a difficult adjustment for the whole family, especially the young girls but they managed to make it work and became closer because of it. The sisters in particular were tight-knit, confiding in each other about all manner of things they were going through. Valerie said that everybody loved Nova in their community and that her big sister was always laughing, always having fun. In 1973, six years after the Welsh family moved to the UK, Nova fell head over heels in love with a boy a little bit older than her. Nova was 16 when she met Osmond Bell, and apparently the feeling was mutual as they soon began dating. It wasn't long after this that they decided to move in together, and they found themselves a flat in a tower block in the city of Birmingham. Once they were settled into this flat, they started a family of their own, welcoming their first son, Jonathan, into the world when Nova was 18. A few years later, another son, Lee, was born. Sources differ on the exact age range of the boys, but it seems to agree that they were between two and four years apart in age. Osman went into trade as a builder and was the main source of income for the young family, while Nova worked part-time as a cleaner to help with the finances. While both parents showered their children with affection, unfortunately, the same sentiment couldn't be reciprocated between them. Their initially loving and romantic partnership took a steep downward spiral. Their idyllic aura faded into the background, replaced by frequent and loud arguments that reverberated through the walls, serving as a grim soundtrack to their deteriorating relationship. Regrettably, these conflicts would often turn physical, Nova falling victim to Osmond's violence. She would often be covered in bruises that could be seen by her neighbors and family alike. Just like she did when she was a child, Nova would confide in Valerie about her relationship difficulties, and it was incredibly hard for all the family to see Nova in such a situation, especially with two young children to care for. After almost a decade together in 1981, Nova gathered the courage she needed to end things with Osmond. It does seem that Osmond unhappily accepted this breakup, but it isn't clear if he moved out of the apartment they shared. 
He was especially unhappy when Nova began seeing someone new, a man named Wayne Newby. If Osman had moved out by this point, he must have been living near enough to see who was coming and going, because he was very much aware when Nova started this relationship. Osmond became incredibly violent when he learned Wayne was visiting Nova at her home, an argument that quickly devolved into a physical assault. This attack was witnessed by a relative of Nova's who immediately called the police. When officers arrived on the scene, however, Nova played down the situation. She said that they were just arguing and she only wanted Osmond to leave the residence. What she didn't mention was that he had been trying to strangle her because she had been out with her new partner the previous night. Osmond was compliant with the police when they forced him to leave the home, but he wouldn't be gone for long. Nova and Wayne's blossoming relationship was going strong. They had a good group of friends. They would go dancing together, and Valerie got to see her big sister start laughing again. The night of July 24, 1981, was one such night where the new couple decided to go dancing and Nova elected to leave her kids with her dad while she went out with Wayne. It doesn't seem as though her sons, Jonathan and Lee, ever saw her again. It was already late when Nova said goodbye to Wayne and the rest of their friends and decided to head back home. Strangely, though both of the boys were staying in Osmond's home, Nova's neighbors once again heard Nova and Osmond arguing late that night. The fight was so loud that it actually woke the neighbors up and went on for some time. Eventually, there was silence, and the neighbors were able to get back to sleep. That night was the last time any of Nova's friends ever saw her alive. She didn't pick up her sons, she didn't show up for work on July 27th, and she wasn't returning anyone's phone calls. Her best friend, Lorna Edmund, not to be confused with Nova's mother, Lorna Welsh, tried to contact her multiple times, even going to her home and knocking on the door, but didn't receive any answers. Nova's mother and sister had recently moved to Miami, Florida, and for a brief moment, Lorna considered that Nova may have gone to visit them with her children. The eventual plan had been for Nova and her sons to join her family in the States, so that wouldn't have been a completely unbelievable explanation. But when Lorna saw that there was washing hanging out to dry, she knew something must have happened to her friend. When Nova still hadn't shown up by August 4th, 10 days after she had last been seen, Lorna reported Nova missing. Police immediately reached out to Osmond since he was the father of her children and someone Nova should have been in regular contact with. Both the boys were now living with him full-time, and Osmond said he hadn't heard from Nova in days. In fact, he seemed to think that she had gone to America with her new partner, Wayne, possibly to visit her mother and sister. But this was obviously not the case, as Wayne was still in the local area, and Lorna Welsh had been trying to contact Nova from Miami to no avail. Police thought they may have a lead when Lorna Edmund turned in a letter she had just received, three days after she reported her friend missing. The letter was anonymous, and whoever wrote it, claimed that her boyfriend had seen Nova on a night out. She said her boyfriend had seen Nova with an unknown man and that the man had attacked her. This briefly cast suspicion on Wayne, her current boyfriend, as he was the only man she was known to be going out with in the days leading up to her disappearance. But Wayne was just as clueless and concerned as the rest of Nova's friends, asserting that he truly had no idea where she was. 
Then, on August 18th, three and a half weeks after Nova had last been seen, one of her neighbors contacted the police. They reported that there was a foul odor in the building, and the investigators quickly arrived at the scene. It was clear by the strength of the odor that it was coming from near Nova Welsh's apartment, though sources differ on whether it was just nearby or actually coming from the apartment itself. Their search brought them to a utility cupboard, which some sources report was located under some stairs. The lock to this cupboard appeared to have been broken and was only being held together by a piece of chewing gum. So, it was simple enough to open up. What they saw there was devastating. The body of 24-year-old Nova Welsh wrapped up in a blanket. A post-mortem examination shed light on the cause of her tragic passing. Pressure applied to her neck, indicative of possible strangulation. The findings further indicated that her demise probably occurred shortly after her last confirmed sighting. The time frame pointed to a window spanning from the early hours of July 25th to the 27th, when Nova's absence from work raised alarms. Astonishingly, her body had remained hidden in the utility cupboard, a secluded corner, for a staggering three weeks, allowing decomposition to set in. There was one obvious suspect, someone who had access to Nova's home, with witnesses to him attempting to strangle her on at least one occasion. But although the neighbors had heard Osmond Bell arguing with Nova late into the night on the last day she was seen, and he suddenly had full custody of the children they shared, there were no witnesses to the murder itself. Further complicating things was that it was still unknown when exactly Nova was killed. And just as we saw in the previous case, even if it had been scientifically possible to carry out DNA testing in Nova's apartment, Osmond had lived there very recently, and his DNA would have been all over the place. Although the police, along with Nova's friends and family, deeply suspected Osmond was the culprit, they simply did not have the evidence to keep him in custody. He was released without any charges, and the question of who killed Nova Welsh went unanswered for a long, long time. It would once again take more than 30 years' worth of advancements in DNA science for any progress to get made. It all came down to the anonymous letter sent to Lorna Edmund and the gum that was wedged in the cupboard lock to keep the door closed. In 2014, while reviews were being carried out on cold cases in the Birmingham area, a forensic examination was completed on the envelope of the anonymous letter. It was considered a key piece of evidence since it was sent before Nova's body was found, and therefore the only person who could have known she had been attacked was whoever had killed her. It was entirely possible that whoever sent it had been trying to frame someone else to direct the police's attention away from the actual culprit themselves. In 1981, there would have been no reason for a criminal to think that licking an envelope to seal it shut would leave evidence to their identity. They had no idea that the technological advances necessary to put them behind bars were going to be just around the corner. Osmond Bell had no way of knowing that sealing an envelope would seal his fate, but the 2014 cold case review did just that when it found a partial match to his DNA on the envelope. However, the letter alone was not enough. Regardless of who sent it, it could have been done as a hoax, or even someone innocently mistaking a woman in an unrelated domestic dispute for Nova. 
Osmond might have truly seen Nova having an altercation with an unknown man and made the letter anonymous so that he wouldn't make himself look even more suspicious with the allegation. What did place Osmond at the scene of the crime at the time of Nova's murder was the piece of chewing gum he used to lock her body in the utility closet. A forensic examination of the gum confirmed it contained the same incomplete DNA profile as the letter seal. According to the prosecution during trial, the letter and the gum sharing the same profile was a one-in-a-billion chance. Osmond was officially arrested in August of 2016. He had been a free man for 35 years. At this time, Osmond Bell had complaints to make about the way he had been treated by police in his first round of interviews back in the 80s. He claimed that in the days following the discovery of Nova's body, he suffered through a dark and terrible interrogation by the police, saying that in particular, to say he was racially abused is an understatement. It is worth noting that Osmond Bell is a black man, Nova Welsh was a woman of color, and racism in 1980s England was even more rampant and violent than it is in modern times. He accused the police of physical abuse, including striking him around the head and kicking the chair out from under him as an intimidation tactic. It would not be surprising at all for this story to be true, and though it does not in any way retroactively excuse Osmond's actions, that kind of treatment is unforgivable. A further allegation Osmond made was that the police had actually left him with the anonymous letter during breaks in the interview process, and that he had felt encouraged to handle it. Since he denied ever having written the letter, this may have explained away why his DNA was identified on the envelope. Obviously, though, that wouldn't explain the presence of his DNA on the chewing gum where Nova's body was found. At any rate, the evidence was too compelling for any amount of excuses to overcome, and Osmond Bell was taken to court for the murder of Nova Welsh in 2017. The trial took place at Birmingham Crown Court and lasted six weeks total. The prosecution had clear means, motive, and opportunity. Despite their tumultuous relationship and breakup, it seems Nova never denied Osmond entry to her home. Osmond was evidently jealous and enraged by Nova's new relationship with Wayne Newby, and Osmond had a history of attempting to strangle Nova. They told the story of a man who, after a night of looking after their children so that Nova could go out on the town with her new boyfriend, flew into a rage in the heat of the moment that, one way or another, ended in the young woman's death. The one element of the case that the prosecution had no evidence for was that the murder was premeditated, so it is understandable that after more than a week of deliberations, the jury acquitted Osmond of murder in favor of a manslaughter conviction. At sentencing, the judge lamented that Nova had managed to break free from a vicious cycle of domestic violence, only to fall victim to the same man because he was jealous of her new relationship. 36 years after he killed Nova Welsh, Osmond Bell was sentenced to only 12 years for the murder, and he was informed he would only serve half of this sentence in prison. For the other six years, he would be out on license, essentially probation. Because of this, he became eligible for parole earlier this year on March 21, 2023. It is not clear whether he is still in prison at this time. Valerie, Nova's sister, said that despite everything he had put them through, she and her family forgave him for what he had done, but he still had to pay for his crimes. 
Even though no result would bring her daughter back, Lorna Welsh said that her family could finally have closure, knowing the person who took Nova's life has been brought to justice, and that her daughter could now rest in peace at long last. Nova's best friend, Lorna Edmund, agreed with the sentiment, saying, I will never forget her. Till we meet again, Nova. Just as in the case of Blanche Kimball, Detective Inspector Justin Spanner emphasized the importance of focusing on cold cases, saying, With the advances of technology assisting our old investigations, we can bring people to justice no matter how long after the offense has happened. And there you have it, the heart of this episode's message. We might have lured you in with the intriguing chewing gum twist, but at the core, we've shared the cases of two women who almost slipped through the cracks of time, far before their rightful moments. Two women, Blanche Kimball and Nova Welsh, connected by their tragic stories, yet divided by oceans, lifetimes, and vastly different journeys. Despite their difference, neither of them deserved to fade into obscurity, for both were individuals who left their mark on the world. I hope today's episode has gone a little way to preserve their memories, and that with the progression of science and technology, many more cold cases like it can be solved, or even prevented from ever going cold to begin with. And that the families and friends, no matter how distant they were, of both the women we covered in today's cases, have been able to find peace. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It's a really big help. Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now at true crime underscore cases, Facebook at facebook.com slash true crime cases W Laney, and Instagram at true crime cases with Laney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at LaneyHobbsBO or on TikTok at LaneyHobbs. And we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk of The Inky Paw Print, with content editing by Laney Hobbs. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks, at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or at theinkypawprint.com. <laughs>